Welcome to the Founders for Good podcast, hosted by myself, Craig Turner. Join me as I speak to the most inspirational founders of four good startups, the people that are leading the way when it comes to solving the world's most pressing issues. I explore their journey as founders and their best kept secrets on how to grow a four good startup and how to hire top people. My hope is that this will inspire you to be part of the solution and do your bit in making the world a better place. Thanks for tuning in to the Founders for Good podcast. Daniel Jexmian is the co-founder and CEO of ESG Gen. ESG is an increasingly hot topic, with investors, banks and governments putting more focus on non-financial performance within businesses. It's no longer just about making money, it's how do businesses make that money? How do they treat their employees? What does their supply chain look like? What are their CO2 emissions? ESG is a framework to hold businesses accountable for how they manage the finite resources in the world and how they treat people. Daniel created ESG Gen as an easy-to-use and affordable platform targeted on the SME and startup markets, making it easy for small business owners to run better businesses. Hey, Daniel. Pleasure to have you on the show today. How are you? Yeah, great. Um, thanks for having me on, Greg. No problem. Um, so, look, I, I guess, first of all, just want to chat to you a bit about your kind of path into becoming an entrepreneur. Like, you've, you've run a number of successful businesses. Um, what, what were some of the major influences in your life that kind of pushed you down that, that path? That's an interesting question. I've, I've never really w- knew I wanted to be uh, an entrepreneur. I guess I've started my, my career uh, working for a small media advertising agency after university. And then by some miraculous fluke, uh, I've ended up uh, uh, hitting a job in Google, uh, which was probably the, the best thing I could wish for myself from a career perspective back then. And that's kind of what I wanted to do. I always dreamed to work at a company like Google, the work environment always appealed to me. I, I really enjoyed being part of that huge, successful organization. I, I joined them. I worked with them for two years, and and although I learned a ton of, I've learned a lot today that I'm applying on my day to day job in building businesses. The key thing I learned working for a large organization is that I don't want to work for large organizations, uh, in the sense that they very much expect you to fall within a specific box or to just do one job and do it very well. And there is um, kind of this race towards uh, the next promotion, the little bit more responsibility, managing a slightly larger team, which I only discovered that I kind of don't enjoy that or it's not for me when I was deep in there. And I think what's pushed me over the edge is then working for another company that uh, that boxed uh, its employees so well that it kind of got me to the point where I said, okay, I've got to start my own business. It has to be something. And I started my own business. It's actually not on my on my CV because it was a, a massive failure. Yeah, no, I'm always intrigued though because I, I've asked the question to a few people and sometimes it's like, you know, parental role models. Sometimes it's certain like situations that just happen out of nowhere. For you, it sounds like more of a gradual transition, seeing what you didn't want to be doing and then going to a place like Google, which I think, although a very large company um, does uh, like nurture the more kind of entrepreneurial spirit and then these other things. My next question was going to be like, I know you talked about the one that didn't quite happen, <laughs> the failure. But um, before that, you've the last kind of couple prior to what you do right now were quite successful. Like, could you just explain quickly like what those businesses were, what they did, how big they got to, and, and like what the exit looked like? Yeah. So right after this um, train delay company uh, that didn't work out, I actually had a, a friend. So that business was called. I, I, I named it Fair Fair. It's like a fair fair that you. 
like a pair of faux fur. And um, one of my friends basically introduced me to another friend who was, uh, um, who was my co-founder at Flatfair, the second business we started, who basically told me, you've got to meet this guy. He's got a business. He has the same name as your business. And on the basis of that, you've got to meet him. So we, <laughs> we met. And his, best, his business name was, funnily enough, it wasn't Fairfair. It was Flatfair, but it was close enough. And um, he basically told me about this um, huge opportunity that which he's discovered, which is the rental deposit space. So in the UK, there was at the time just over six billion pounds worth of you know regular people's you and I deposit money that we give to our landlord in a sense to secure our rental accommodation. And I was very much aware of this problem because when I moved to London, it was the most expensive thing I've paid for. And then he basically told me why we, there could be another, there is another solution. We can basically securitize this and then get people to get renters to pay a smaller fee on the back of not having to pay a deposit. And then we can then guarantee the deposit to the landlord, which immediately struck a light bulb moment in my head saying like, how did I not think about it? It's so simple and, and so smart and there's so much money. And obviously it's a pain that I was in, I was even exposed to directly, right? I felt that pain directly, but everybody take it as granted to the point where you don't even think about finding a solution to that problem. You just pay the money because that's what you need to do to get the house. So that's how the Flatfair story started. We, we, I met with him. We started working on the business within a space of a month. I finally quit my job and we started working on Flatfair together. So at the beginning, it was just uh, us two. We then had a third co-founder, but a year, a half a year later joined. And then the journey there was insane. Like we started the three of us for about a year whilst we figured out how we going to make this work. Very quickly, we got our first large letting agent client, which meant that uh, we are able to offer this to uh, tens of thousands of rentals each year, uh, which meant that we started growing faster than we initially anticipated. Um, so we grew from three to maybe 15 in a space of six months, and then from 15 to about 80 in a space of the following six months. We've raised uh, just under $20 million from the best VCs in the world, including um, Index Ventures, Adavinta, which is a, a large European continental Europe uh, fund, and many others. Um, and we, we sort of grew that business really quickly, really well. Obviously, we then had the downturn of the pandemic, which has really hit the rental sector. So that was an unexpected bump in the road. Um, but the business is still running today. It's doing very well. It's, uh, I think it's fair to say that it's the, if not one of the largest deposit alternative providers in the UK. And I'm, I'm just so, I, I've stepped down about a year, well, two years ago now, nearly two years ago, I stepped down from the business, but I'm so humbled and so blessed that I was able to become part of that of that business from, from right from ideation where we, you know, two guys sitting in a, in somebody's bedroom waiting for an email to drop in our inbox. You know, it was whole days where nobody would return an email to the point where you are all of a sudden you've got more emails than you know how to, how to handle. 
and and going through all the ups and downs of running a business from becoming incredibly successful incredibly fast to dealing with some pretty serious challenges uh, around the pandemic time gives you so much growth something that i don't think you would be able to get from a standard corporate job but not only for the founders for everybody in the business everybody in the business is is almost injected with this accelerated growth you know serum that uh, some people can handle some people will will in- inevitably drop out but it's it's the fastest way to develop to for for personal growth and for, for personal development even more so when things are not going to plan so yes you do grow and you do develop quickly when things are going amazing uh, but you do so you do even more of that through pain through sheer pain and when things don't go well um so I'm still a significant shareholder in that business and it's the business is doing uh, incredibly well and then we had an opportunity of, of creating another business during those years which um does a very similar thing to Flatfair but for commercial space and that business was sold just before at the end of 2019 yeah and that's kind of the, the that's kind of 5 years really boiled down into 5 minutes uh, <laughs> of, of building of building a startup from scratch getting through all the ups and downs Obviously, that quite quite an interesting journey, and then even then, the plan didn't quite go to plan. And we're going to talk about the latest venture very shortly. But before that, I just wanted to kind of speak a bit about the ESG space, actually, and just set some kind of context for the listeners that don't maybe know so much about it. So, um, very much a layman's kind of terms question, but can you explain like what is ESG? So I started with zero background in the space as well. For those of you who don't know what ESG is, ESG basically stands for Environmental and Social Governance. And it's basically a reporting framework for businesses, uh, which designed to inform uh, them, the business itself, but also external stakeholders about the performance of things that are non-financial in the business. And non-financial basically is a fancy terms for what's your performance on anything which is not directly tied into money stuff. So... What's your performance in terms of the most kind of the, the, the most commonly spoken topic in the space is what's your emission performance? How much CO2 and equivalent gases are you producing as a business? Um, so that's an example of a non-financial data set, which is tied into the environmental side of ESG. But it goes beyond to examples of environmental is how much waste are you producing? How much plastic are you buying? Uh, how much, uh, what's your percentage of usage of renewable energy? How much water are you consuming? Uh, very much kind of tied into your management of finite resources, which is surely should be a high topic on everybody's mind if you expect to continue living on this planet in a decent way. But it goes beyond that. It goes into the social aspects of things. Uh, for example, are you paying salaries in line with uh, kind of norms within your area? What's your gender pay gaps? What's your gen- gender diversity, ethnic diversity? Uh, what's the CEO pay gap? And, and that's kind of examples of the social aspects of things. And then on the governance side, it's, it's kind of the most neglected piece, but it's not less important, is what it, how, how well your company is uh, performing from a governance perspective. How many times it is being sued or intervened by tax authorities or... Uh, how many, how regular your board meetings, how diversified your board, this kind of stuff falls into the governance. Um, so this is, in a nutshell, this is ESG. And 
the whole ESG started about a decade ago, like at the beginning, like 2010, I would say it's where it started. And it's almost like um, a permutation of corporate social responsibility. It's the better half of corporate social responsibilities, which some of you may know as CSR. And the way I like to explain ESG and CSR and the difference between them is that uh, corporate social responsibilities is essentially a way for corporates to justify bad business practices by throwing money at charitable causes. Whereas ESG is the process of identifying bad business practices and eliminating them. So it's these are the, the way that they kind of interlink. And obviously the easier route is to go down the CSR, let's just throw money at some charitable causes, let's just buy some you know, carbon offsets, let's just, you know, build a school somewhere and we can continue doing the the conspicuous stuff that we are doing right now. Uh, but the reality is, is that doesn't hold. And I think where the two are actually really diverging is who's driving each one of those. So CSR has been driven by marketing departments of companies, basically trying to reestablish their own branding and image in a, in a more positive light. ESG, on the other hand, is actually being driven by the financial markets. So if I'm an investor and I want to make a 10-year investment in company X, it's actually getting to the point where knowing how dependent that company is on fossil fuel is material information to the investment, meaning that if all of the revenue is directly tied into burning fossil fuel, as an investor, you probably should be thinking about is that practice still going to be allowed to go on for another 10 years? I.e., is this business going to still being able to generate cash in that way in 10 years' time? And hopefully the answer is no, which means that as an investor, I now need to take that piece of information and to incorporate this into my kind of decision metrics. So this is where the two diverge. ESG is the real practice of collecting quantitative data about a business performance in respect of the optimization of that business and csr is let's optimize the brand so yes that's a that's a 10 minute on on esg <laughs> no that's really helpful and i'd never really thought about it that way in terms of like csr versus esg uh, and and you mentioned about like the pressures coming down from like investment as well and like what investors are looking for. But as I understand, you've also got kind of pressures upwards as well. Like consumers care much more about how businesses are run, how responsible they are, how sustainable they are. So like the, the things that happen within the ESG frameworks is also going to impact actually, are people going to buy a product or service? And likewise, are people going to want to work for us? Like employees care more and more about these things as well. And like you say, CSR kind of can paint over some of the cracks and put some plus and stuff, but it's actually the ESG, which is, fundamentally going to change and, and goes into how that business operates next i was going to ask about was just um i believe there's been some like legislation changes both in the uk and europe and other continents can you just share i guess more from like a uk europe perspective like some of the key regulations or legislation that's come out that that's also in like starting to incentivize and push businesses to invest more in esg yeah so let's not make it um a compliance seminar, which will will get all the all the listeners to switch off at this point. But essentially, there are going back to the investment thesis. As we all know, governments are putting huge amounts of money into what's called transition loans or green financing. That basically huge chunks of taxpayers' money 
that are being redirected back into the economy for the purpose of improving something. So that could be building more efficient roads, more efficient power station, but it goes all the way to allowing people to better insulate their houses or for businesses to have access to uh, preferential terms to buy solar panels so they could put on their warehouses uh, and buy a, a transition their fleet to from uh, fossil to electric. So there is there is a huge amount of money which is currently being funneled from governments. And in, in order to facilitate that, governments are putting regulation in place to ensure that that money is actually being put in the right place. That's kind of a simplification of the regulation. Those regulations are, they, they use uh, trickle-down economics uh, in the sense of the regulations are directly impacting the largest players in the economic market, but they are forcing those players to dig into their supply chains or value chains, which is where it's starting to impact smaller and smaller businesses. So we already have European regulation, SFDR for large companies and finance market participants, uh, another regulation called CSRD, which is for larger companies, but not public. In the UK, you've got a new regulation launched in the 1st of April last year, uh, which is called SDR, which is a sustainable disclosure requirement. You've got another framework, which is called the TCFD. Basically, if you want access to any of those green loans, sustainable loans, you have to have a transition plan in place. And that transition plan have to follow a framework called TCFD. What it means is that for large companies, yes, they have to report, they have to report already, and they have quite stringent reports. And there is a whole new world of standards, meaning that the accountants are actually coming in and saying, well, it's nice that you're reporting, but somebody actually needs to check your numbers now, because up until now, you could basically say whatever you want. And you can imagine a world where companies will say, well, this is my profit. This is how much tax I want to pay without having to go through an audit process where an accountant will have to verify that, right? It will not end well. In fact, uh, we had that. It was, it was called the great financial crash in, in, in the US uh, before, before those standards. So that's currently what's going on in the sustainable reporting space, but that's, that's quickly being organized by the IFRS, which is the International Financial Reporting Standards, by the ISSB, the International Sustainable Standard Boards. They're fixing this. It will take some time, but they're on it. And all the big world regulators, the FCA, the EU Commission, the SEC, uh, and 40 others have already adopted those, um, whatever the recommendation that will come out of those. How it's affecting large companies, it already is affecting them. It's, it's forcing them to disclose uh, things like gender pay gap, diversity, carbon emission, waste production. There is there is a bunch of things they need to disclose. But uh, what companies have been very successfully doing is that there's they found a workaround. They've been able to outsource their bad business practices to their suppliers. So I'm company X. I pay all my staff equally. I have perfect diversity. I have no carbon emission. I have no waste. Everything is recyclable. It's all... It's all shiny, yeah. but the factories that produce my goods is where all the kind of the nasty stuff happen. And in order to tackle that, a new update to the various regulation is forcing those players to start reporting not only about themselves, but across their value chains. And how is it playing out? So company, if I'm a, if I'm a vendor to a public company, 
that public company now is required to collect that data for you. Uh, and, and that vendor can be an SME selling T-shirts to company X, right? So that could be any company doing business with company, with, with the disclosing company. Uh, above a certain degree, right? If you bought a chewing gum from a company, then maybe you, that transaction will be exempt. Other examples of this would be if you tender or you want to work with government, both in the UK or EU, you have to disclose that information because the government now has a net zero plan and they need to prove that every single contract that they take on is working towards a net zero. Otherwise, what's the point in the plan, right? Even though arguably the plans are far away from execution, but it's a first step in the right direction. If you're a bank, right, we've got, we already have over 140 financial institutions that have signed up to the Mark Carney net zero uh, banks for net zero. Basically all the banks, all the major banks, 95% of global GDP is already, uh, sorry, uh, global assets under management are already committed to this um, pledge. And basically, it means that banks cannot now freely finance another huge petroleum project in an unknown location because that's not in line with their net zero financing. So again, if you're a small company borrowing money from a bank now, the bank needs to know your data so they can provide that to the regulators and, and actually figure out themselves what their finance emissions are. And I think the, uh, do one more example if you're a company like us taking investment from institutional investors who have retail money as part of that institutional investment group, that investment firm now has an obligation to report on their investment chain. So how well are they deploying their investment investors' money in terms of ESG? That means that they need to go into each portfolio company and figure out what's the ESG performance of those companies so they can report it up the chain. So. You can see that there is more and more examples in which companies will just have to start reporting on this. And it's a trickle down economics, meaning that it's usually the burden is usually on the top co who works with smaller businesses who needs to report on the smaller businesses. It's estimated that by 2028, that's, that's where the last legislation in the European CSRD comes in, in the corporate sustainable disclosure, regulation disclosure, something. That kicks in fully in 2028, which means that every single company who is not a sole trader and a freelancer will have to report on this data. So that's 22, 23 million businesses who have to now report their taxes and their environmental and social taxes, if you like. And from a market size perspective, it's estimated that the non-financial reporting world is going to reach somewhere between 250 to half a trillion dollars a year by 2030. So very big market. It's a very big problem. And it's kind of the first step. If you think about it, it's the first step for us to start being accountable with how we treat finite resources. Up until now, we take air, water, electricity pretty much for granted, but those things are, are they're, they're becoming scarcer and scarcer. And we need to, as, as humanity, we need to start managing them. The only way to encourage well management uh, or proper management of resources in a capitalist environment is taxes. Right? If you start taxing something, you'll have less usage of it. But before you tax, you need to measure how much being used. So this is kind of the first step in that road. Yeah, that no, makes makes total sense. And and I guess looking at the demographic of like the the SMEs, the the small medium businesses, what are their 
like challenges and pain points because I guess from their perspective there's a lot of ignorance there is a lot like they've got finite financial resources or they can't throw loads of money at this so is the problem for their side is like don't we know what's going on also like what tool do I use how much do I need to spend on this is that kind of like the headache that they're the like small business owners are trying to deal with yeah absolutely so to start with this the up until now solutions have mainly exist for the corporate world it's only now that the corporate world is dragging the smaller world with it into this disclosure escapade. From an SME's perspective, look, first and foremost, SMEs are they're running a business, right? They're they're not they may have individual values that value the environment, equal equal treatments of the different genders, um, they may have that as individuals, but at the end of the day, when push comes to shove, SMEs need to ensure that they are running an effective business and that they can meet next month payroll and that they can keep everybody on with the job and that they have their business themselves. So whilst it is a, a growing pain for them, it's um, it's a periphery pain for them. So it's just something new they have to do and not a very attractive things that they it's not something very attractive they want to do right it's as i often compare it it's as fun as paying your taxes right nobody really wants to go down an assessment process where they will find out all of their performance and later on to be taxed based on their performance right that's that's maybe something that will come and it's not very appealing like why would i want to do that and the answer to that is you would want to do that first and foremost because it will help you manage your business better. If you get a grip on your usage of resources, on your consumption of electricity, on your on how you manage the operation side of your business, you will find opportunities to save money, which previously been overlooked. From a social perspective, if you have an equal pay company, you are more likely to retain the other the other gender in the business right i can pretty much guarantee that if a specific gender is underpaid in a business they're going to be disgruntled about that and they will eventually leave you the cost of losing talent is arguably much more than matching salaries within your organization so and it's just stuff that inherently you'll find yourself in the business but you never really gave time to think about it or to to see the path towards solving it so first and foremost, we advocate the fix your business, get a better business up, up and going, up and running. The other side values you get out of that is that compliance. So I now have all these stakeholders from my PLC customer who is now sending me this pile of questions that I don't know how to answer. What's my CO2? What's my water consumption? What's my gender pay gap? What's my CEO pay gap? Like, I don't even know how to answer it. So I, I may just make it up and send it back, which a lot of businesses currently do, guesstimating. But compliance, get the data sorted so you can give that to your customers. You will eventually have to give that to your bank. So if you want access to a loan, let alone a better term loan, such as a green loan or transition loan, you will need that data. If you want access to government tenders, if you want to work with government or with local governments or with institutional organizations, you will need that. Uh, if you want to be attractive from uh, an investment perspective, right? A lot of the investment community now boasts um, ESG investments or, or equal investments or better impact investments. If you have 
if you have those areas of your business under grasp, you are you're opening yourself up to be appealing as a business to a wider group of investors, and you will attract more money. Um, and and that's not just a statement. You can already see loads of examples where companies are literally only diverging funds for what they call ESG or green investments opportunities. And that's that can be you if you take the right steps at the right time. And kind of last and but not least would be the external messages you put out there, right? And that relates to your perception as a brand, which will then feed into your customer's perception. Do I want to be associated with this brand? Are they selling something that I'm happy supporting? Or are they killing lots of dolphins just so I can wear this, you know, hat? That's one aspect. But the other aspect, which is which you will know very well, very close, is that people now kind of had enough working without purpose. They want to make sure they work in an environment that is promoting their values and that working for a company that echoes their sentiments and that treats people equally and that has a even if it's not a perfect business, no business is perfect, but at least it recognizes its shortcomings and it has a plan for how it's going to address those shortcomings over the period of whatever, then that already goes a huge distance in terms of your credibility as a brand to show to show that vulnerability. Look, nobody's perfect. We've got all these problems in our business. It's one of many, many problems but we're going to identify the, the burning topics for us and we're going to slowly but surely work at improving it. If you're listening and thinking, I'd love to work for a company like this, then you need to go to www.jobsforgood.io where they have the best jobs in four good companies. From climate change to social impact to green transport, you'll be able to find the perfect job for you. Trust me. Check it out www.jobsforgood.io. Now back to the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you need to know what your baseline is, like where what is the current state, and then that allows you then to set some goals and objectives to where you want to get to. And I think all people want is a level of transparency. They don't expect the perfect company. They expect a company that is aware of where they currently are and have a plan of where they want to get to and ensure that aligns with that person's values. Um but anyway, I, I, that was really helpful and a really good insight into like generally ESG. And um, for anyone listening that wants to learn more, there is a ton of helpful resources on your website, which is www.esggen.com. Um, so check that out. Um, and probably a good time, Daniel, to actually get you to to explain like what, what is ESG Gen? What, what do you do? Yeah, it's about time, right? <laughs> so <laughs> we basically we we've identified that there is a huge there is a huge gap in the market. There is all these consultants. There is all this expensive. Uh, solutions that are time-consuming and wallet-consuming for SMEs if they want to comply, which means that essentially we're almost blocking half of the world's economy. Half of the global GDP is SME-driven. And even if we fix corporate, if, if all the corporates get squeaky clean with their practices, we still pretty much solve half the problem now. So we need to start addressing the problem at the same time from both ends. Otherwise, we're just going to our maximum point is going to be 50, 50% improvement here. And SMEs find it very difficult to engage with this problem because it's complicated. It's riddled with jargon and regulation and conflicting frameworks, very much like your accounting, right? Your average business is not, uh, the owner of the average business is not going to know how their accounting works to, 
to the dot, right? They will know, yes, I've got this report. It tells me how much money I've got. I've got this. It tells me how much assets I've got. I've got this. It tells me how much runway I've got. But they have a tool which allows that, right? They use normally an accounting platform together with an accountant, which gives them those insights into their business. And essentially what we've identified is that there is um, there is a big gap in terms of a solution which is both accessible but affordable for SMEs in that respect. So we basically set up on the year and a half ago, we set up on our path to build the QuickBooks of non-financial data, which is we hope will be the parallel platform used by businesses to manage all of their non-financial data. So energy consumption, CO2, or water, waste, everything we talked about in this, uh, in this podcast will be managed in a quick, in a simple to use dashboard. The data will be driven automatically directly from their own systems. So we are minimizing the amount of work businesses need to do to get the data up and running. All you need to do is connect your accounting system, HR system, sales system, logistics system, and we do all the heavy liftings. We'll pull all the information, we'll organize it, we'll standardize it, we'll run the calculation, and we'll produce reports which are all in line with international accounting standards. So essentially, that's kind of the core business we're building this accounting platform for non-financial data. To date, we've uh, we've launched a platform for directly for, for SMEs, so businesses directly can use it. But as I've mentioned, not every business has an internal accountant or somebody in the business who would know how to use a relatively complex platform like this. Um, so we are now in the process of launching the accountancy platforms, which will essentially empower accountants of businesses to work with their own clients, their own SMEs, to produce the reports for them. So in the very in the very same way you work with your own accountant, you know, you have access to QuickBooks, but they do everything. You know, you send them the receipts, you, they do the bookkeepings, they do the consolidations, they do the year-end accounts, they prepare. All you need to do is you sign something somewhere once a year. So that's what we are now building. So that functionality for accountants, which essentially will open up this section, this 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 tools or suite of tools to businesses through their accountant. That's kind of one element of our product. The other product is what we are building, essentially the the bureau of non-financial information for the private sector. So Equifax for non-financial data, meaning that if a, if a bank wants to give you a green loan as a business, they'll be able to ask your permission to access your sustainability data through the bureau, which you'll then be able to share with the bank, which they'll be able to see, oh, you do have a plan in place. You've got CO2 reductions ongoing already. I can definitely qualify you for a green loan, which means that you get preferential business terms. So that's kind of the the the, the overarching data systems that we're building. Essentially, we want to enrich the data sets available for non-financial information within the private within the private sector. Nice. And do you go as far, like from an SME perspective, as well as like displaying the data and giving them this annual report, do you go as far as like recommendations of like, if you take these actions, that would give you a better scoring within your social like part of the framework? Does it, does it go that far? So uh, we, we try to be very objective in our approach. So we give you numbers. We don't judge. We don't tell you if it's good or bad. We give you the numbers. We give you the science-based benchmarks. We show you what your last year's numbers. We give you the trends. We have functionality within our Analyze product that gives you 
kind of low-hanging fruits in terms of insights, nothing that a business owner won't be able to kind of deduce by looking at the numbers themselves. So examples are your product Y is responsible for only 2% of your revenue, but 40% of your CO2 emission. Maybe like that's it. So maybe you as a business owner and you think is 40% of my CO2 emission worth 2% of my revenue, or should I just discontinue selling that product? Or should I find alternative materials for that product, which will reduce the CO2 emission with that product? Um, these are the type of things that our platform will generate automatically. But ultimately, we encourage businesses to take that information, either take it up to the board, discuss it as a board, figure out what are the key areas that you want to improve in the business, take it to your own employees, be transparent, show the, the, your employees your performance, ask your employees, what do you want to focus on? Ask your customers, which ones do you want us to focus on? And then either set up a plan yourself or go and use expert consultants in your specific sector who can then tell you how to solve those specific problems. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense, <laughs> especially when you put it like that. But just digging into the products a little bit, um, obviously a really important part of it, as I understand, is the um, ESG Gen scorecard that you've built, because although there's a legislation and regulations out there, as I understand it, and I could be completely wrong, there isn't like a unified, here is the scorecard for all UK businesses when it comes to ESG it's down to interpretation and one thing that you've got your own it's like your own ip but you invest a lot of time is it is this scorecard that you've built that covers enough like all the important areas but it's as simple as possible for like smes to be scored against as well is that right yeah so we've taken the cynical approach to data collection that uh, as smes we want to deal with the least amount of data do the least amount of work to get the most amount of compliance coverage that's everything else is a nice to have on top of that. In other words, if I don't have to report on it, I don't want to collect it and I don't want to track it. That's kind of the approach that we've taken. And what we've done is that we've boiled down the leading regulations and frameworks to what are the commonalities in terms of reporting criteria within all of those. I mean, and it's not rocket science. You will see that it's always the same stuff. It's always CO2, it's always water, it's always renewable energy. It's always gender pay gap. It's always ethnicity, uh, ethnic diversity. Um, so, but what we've done is we've essentially boiled all of them down into the minimum list, which we, is what we have today, which is 29 KPIs plus two policy statements, which give you very strong coverage to most of the European, UK, North American, and rest of world regulation. There might be areas when you need niche help to get a bit of extra reporting. But for most, for 99% of businesses, that's not going to be applicable. So we would give them full coverage for the least amount of work, which is, I think, as a, as a previous SME business owner, this is my approach, right? Everything is on fire constantly. And I, I want to tell me what I need to do to get this pain out of my, out of my hair. And this is what I'll focus on. So that's what we've done. So that's kind of the scorecard. And worth noting that the scorecard was developed together with what was developed by my co-founder, uh, who is now a, a, a doctor at uh, King's Business School. He's, he's leading the sustainability business school over there. And the, the framework, the methodology has now been uh, approved by the uh, joint research, by the EU Joint Research Center, and also by the UK government. So it's it's a, a well-accepted, it's been reviewed by the CREDS, which is um, uh, an organization within Oxford University that deals with uh, energy, supply and demand. 
So it, it's received quite a lot of credentials so far, but by no means there is there's no crazy IP in there. It's just a, a common sensical way of boiling down a complex topic, an alphabet soup, if you like, of acronyms, frameworks, KPIs into the into the noise and the and and the and the kind of the, the mandatory stuff. Yeah, but I mean, as a small business owner myself, like that's exactly what I just want the the basics of what I need to get done to to be compliant and whatever I need to do. Um, I want to chat to you a bit about just just funding. Like as someone that's raised, like you said, tens of millions earlier, I'm sure in different markets, different conditions. Obviously, 2022 was a very challenging year for pretty much every founder I spoke to that was trying to raise. I just wondered, like, what did you see last year? And, and like, what did you see potentially like investors focusing on more or less last year? So raising, we've, uh, raising funds, we've been very fortunate with ESG Gen to have been funded but raising funds by no means is as easy as it was, I think, during the pandemic and maybe pre-pandemic. I think investors focus a lot more on traction, on revenue, on path to profitability, on managing your cost center and not scaling up too fast before you to, for you to explode. Everybody's focusing on longer and longer runways because they understand that the there might be you know recession is a real is a real threat nobody can predict how long that would last what it would mean to the to the venture capital space how much money will be available at the moment we're still kind of we're still on the jet lag party of the 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 of the pre economic funding because all of the funds that have currently been collected have been collected by those funds a lot of those funds before the, the 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 war in Ukraine and the economic correction, I would say, mid midway of last year. So everybody still got these piles of cash, but it will eventually run dry. And there is a very high level of uncertainty of how easy is it going to be to get additional funding into in in a year's time, in two years' time, where you run out of this round's funding and you need to go and get your next funding. And from an investor perspective, I think everybody is now expecting business owners to be a lot more prudent with the way that they're deploying cash because nobody wants to do a downturn. Nobody wants to get into a point where they've, they've done amazingly well. They've built the product, they've built the traction, but they're still burning cash like crazy and they just can't raise the money next year because there'll be no money. So you, you sort of have to, from my perspective, uh, take things slower, spend more time on your business planning, plan, have worse, plan for the worse and expect the best. That's kind of from a financial perspective. Don't assume that you're going to be raising money in two or three months from when you start raising money. I've spent now a lot longer than I've originally anticipated raising this round than I did. To the point where we, I was on the brink of giving up a number of times during that, that that space because funding was so hard to get. So it's a completely different market. I think you you have you you can't look at the the ten years of blossom and growth we had from you know 2010, 2011 to twenty twenty one and and think anything like that is going to be for the next decade. You have to rethink the way that you plan your business. Yeah, no, that's really good advice. And I think that aligns with what everyone's seeing in the market right now. I think two new businesses saw huge growth 
during the pandemic where everyone was working remote, I think from an e-commerce perspective, lots of buying behaviors changed quite dramatically with consumers. And now things are changing again. And obviously those don't drop off and then naturally businesses aren't doing as well. And then you have to cut back on all that hiring that you did when you thought that the business was on a certain trajectory and then that now, now changes or whatever those different factors um, might be. Um, in terms of ESG gen and like the future, the next couple of years, like what, what are some of the really exciting things you've got planned in the roadmap that we should be looking out for? Yeah, so we've just launched two partnerships. So we have a live product which you can sign up. If you're an SME and you want to get a grip on your ESG or non-financial performance because you want to, uh, you can do it. But if anybody is asking you, if a stakeholder, investor, bank, supply chain, partner, then we're here to help you. You can find us online, esggen.com. This is the core thing that we're going to be focusing on this year. It's growing our traction within the B2B sector directly to businesses. But we have two very exciting partnerships with, I can't uh, mention any names, but two of the largest providers of accounting solutions in the UK. One of them is also continental Europe, who we are now launching a partnership to help design and build the platform for their accountants, which means that hopefully by the end of this year, we'll have a platform that can be used by anyone's accountant to do non-financial accounting for the businesses that they work with uh, to their own clients. So I'm, I'm hugely excited about that. And in parallel, we are also working with um, a number of financial institutions and banks to develop a tool that automatically assesses their financed emissions. So the companies who they lend money to, what is their scope one and two emissions at the point at the point where they take the loan, but also helps them generate transition plans, which they can then track and monitor over time. And the incentive for businesses to do it is because they can get serious discounts on their finance. Um, so everybody wins. The business wins because they will be able to get access to cheaper finance. The bank wins because they are helping, uh, they're, they're basically growing the amount of loans that they're able to dish out. And they're, they have access to this huge amount of money, uh, which is becoming available through these transition loan programs of, of the governments. And we are the winners, the, the end consumers, the people who live on this planet, because at the end of the day, if, if we keep putting plastics in the oceans and if we keep polluting like there is no tomorrow, we... We we our our own longevity on this planet is yeah. is at risk, and that and that's why I enjoy working in this space and speaking to people like yourself because it's it's like the the full purpose for good is inherently tied into profit. Like if you do well as a business, it's because you're having a positive impact through whatever your product or, or service does. Um, but yeah, well, it sounds like a massive year <laughs> for you and the team. So I wish you wish you all the best for those plans. Um, last couple of sections now, just just want to chat to you a little bit more on like a founder level. Um, yeah, it's, it's actually most people that come on the show, I think, are first time founders. Um, and as someone, you know, who exited a business previously, I just want to understand actually like emotionally, what do you go through? Like when you sign that that contract, that piece of paper to like hand the business over, what 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 are the emotions going through your head and through your, like through you at that point? Um, so t- to be clear, we, I haven't fully exited the business. So the business is still running, and um, I'm still a shareholder of that business. I can imagine, I can equate to the feeling of leaving that business, the thing that you kind of grew from nothing to being what it is, and 
not working there anymore and saying goodbye to all the friends and all the relationships that you've built in there, you know, limited goodbyes because I'm still in touch with a lot of the team there. Some of the team has gone into building their own businesses now, or they're founders of their own businesses. Some of them are uh, incredibly successful at other businesses. Um, I mean, I'm immensely proud of the fact that Flatfair has been a jumping board to a lot of successful people as well who have kind of made that their defining moment in their own careers as well, or kind of the stepping stone that they were looking for. Um, so from an emotional perspective, it's incredibly sad to leave the, the business that you built. Uh, obviously, it takes adaptation. Like you wake up in the morning and you say, okay, now I'm not doing that, um, which is definitely uh, a life-changing. Um, and I can, I can kind of project myself to the day that um, either of those businesses will be fully exited Obviously, that's that's going to be a very uh, a very happy moment. More so, I think, if I was able to accomplish some positive impact with the businesses, if we, if I could, if the current business, if ESG Gen was in a position to create a new standard where companies have to account for their finite resources and the way that they treat their employees in the same way that they account for their profit. The side effect of that is going to be the side effect that I want to see in the world, which is just a better world for all of us to live in. So I think for me, if if I was able to reach an exit position with ESG Gen, I think that we have accomplished that vision. And that for me, that would be an equally rewarding, or even more so, rewarding experience than the check that would follow at the end of the day. Absolutely. Um, and then final bit is just talking to you a little bit about um, you know, building a, a startup, a tech for good business. Um, you've been involved in a few different businesses. And I just wondered, like, if you had to give advice on like, what's the number one thing to get right early on that allows a business to scale? Like, what would that be? One thing or two things? <laughs> I'll give you two if you've got two. <laughs> so I think the two things that I value the most especially at the, the early days, but actually they're true for any stage, is number one is always team. It's always the people you that you surround yourself. And you, that, that should be, on the one hand, the most painful and painstaking process because it's really hard to find good people um, and like-minded people. Uh, but sometimes you do find them, but they're not your type of people, which is equally important. So that needs to, you need to sort of take all those boxes, especially when you have a small founding team or a small core team that you're growing. That's, you can't compromise on that. Even if it means that you just spend a whole year's hiring, that's what you do. That's the most important aspect of your business is surrounding yourself with a core team that are mission motivated, that are preferably smarter than you are, that are opinionated, that are not going to shy away from telling you that they would do it a different way. Um, this is th That's the most important thing that you can do at the start because they are the one going to build your business um, with their sweat and tears. The second bit is persistence. So as I've mentioned like before, if it wasn't for persistence and not always my persistence, a lot of the times I was about to give up and I had 
other peoples in my circles, in my circles that were encouraging me to continue to persist. It's persistence that actually gets your result. It's not um, practice and persistence don't make perfect. They just make small, tiny improvement over time. And you're just going to have to continue doing that. And without persistence, you're not going to get that improvement. And even when everything looks bleak and everything is doomsday-like, as long as you have a way to persist, you should persist. You should not give up. If you got to a dead end and you are unable to persist anymore, that's a different story. But if you can persist, you should persist. That's that's kind of the, the second piece of advice I'd give. So team and persistence. And actually persistence leads into team because it takes persistence to find the right team. Beautiful. Definitely. Very, very good advice. Um, and then... I guess I come back to something you said earlier, like, you know, you didn't know that much about ESG before. I think you said Mark approached you. How has that changed, I guess, how you've gone about building this business? Like, have have there been certain things you put into place or really focused on when building ESG gen versus maybe previous businesses? Now now you're much more aware of of the topic and the impact it has. Well, there's a lot of things that we're trying to do. There's a lot of things that we're struggling with. Gender diversity is is a top issue in our business. We have a very dis, big disbalance of, of gender within our business. And uh, we are struggling with that problem, for example, consciously. From things that we can do, be- that we, we've built the business to do better from day one, I think we've built the business to support a better life work balance from the get-go. So we have a four days week to start with. It's becoming less and less revolutionary. We now have the biggest study ever made uh, in the UK with 50 or so businesses doing that, showing that it's actually driving productivity, loyalty, reducing attrition, uh, uh, improving mental health within the organization. So four days a week, I can tell you, hands down, has been probably the best thing that we've implemented as a business, and which I kind of put in the bucket of ESG. From a salary perspective, everybody get like even our interns get paid, and not only they get paid, they get paid above the living wage where they live. Um, so nobody should be thinking about whether or not they should switch the heating on uh, in my business or in our business. That's not something that we will even entertain. And whilst those things are costly. And there's more examples of, of the things that we're doing as a business. But I think the key thing to remember is that you should always weigh those things as cost uh, versus rewards. And the benefit of having a well-taken-care-of team and a team that values their place of work and a team that truly believes that the, work, the, the, their, the business that they're trying to wish into existence is taking care of them, the value that this pays back into the business is far greater than the one or two thousand pounds you would save on this and the one or two thousand pounds you would save on that. They vastly outweigh that. Um, If it's purely from a productivity, motivation, um, attrition, you know, why would anybody want to go and 
live for that company if they pay me 10,000 pounds more a year, where in this company I have long weekend every weekend. I mean, try to beat that long weekend every weekend. You can't. It's the best thing. So it just pays dividends in the long term. And yes, it has a, a cash flow uh, impact, but not a productivity impact. Not um, Yeah. So I think there, yeah. there's a lot of things related to that, but it's not necessarily things related to ESG. It's more things that once you've built a business and manage teams and know how things are, how it works when you build things from the ground up and what's what are the consequences if you get something wrong along the way, um, that's actually driving a lot of the decisions in, in making the right decisions. Now, not to say that I'm not making hundreds of mistakes like five centers, that, that's surely that's surely the case um but less mistakes than the previous cycles i'd say that's that's an improvement yeah but as a recruiter like, i find it really fascinating like, how companies go about attracting engaging and then retaining the people they bring into the business um and i feel like you've probably downplayed it a little bit like I, i've been on your website uh, on the careers bit and it talks quite clearly about the commitments you've made as a business and you've done loads of quite impressive things and i was looking at thinking if i was a candidate i'd definitely be interested in working here just purely based on like the values and, and what you've put into place and, and like what what the company stands for um and like you said you know there is a running cost of that but i still believe that will be much less than the cost of losing a lot of good people having to re-recruit for those people the productivity gap in in between those stages it's impossible to ever show those two lines against each other because you never know exactly when people leave but i, I truly believe that actually by doing things right from day one you're going to be better off in the long term than yeah the, the, the other way about going going about stuff but uh, i really appreciate you chatting with me today really enjoyed it and um, wish you and the team all the best thanks greg it's been a pleasure talking to you and thank you very much for having me on Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you've enjoyed it, please subscribe, share this episode and leave us a review. We're just getting started out, so it would mean a lot to us. This episode was brought to you by Craig Turner, produced by Jabril al and sponsored by Jobs for Good. Until next time. <laughs>